0: Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look over the next couple of weeks at the birth accounts of Jesus uh, from the Gospels and um, want to uh, just take a few weeks and do that. I, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, or so the song says, right? It may be the strangest Christmas any of us will ever have. And I confess to you, it doesn't look a lot like Christmas very much. It, didn't, it doesn't feel like Christmas very much. In fact, yesterday, um, or Friday, I guess, I was, I, you know, I was thinking, well, i got to get in the Christmas spirit. i got to write the Christmas sermon. And, you know, been working on it all week. And so, I put on Andrew Peterson's Behold, the Lamb of God found myself in about four minutes terribly frustrated that it's the new version, not the old version. You can't find the old one anywhere. They took it off, and now all you got the new one is, it didn't do anything for the Christmas spirit for me. And everything, it's like frustration has come in spades. I don't know about you. It's where I am. Struggled this week, want it to feel like Christmas always feels. And yet, life is disrupted in so many ways for us. Well, I'll tell you, in looking at Matthew 1 this week, I, I was surprised at the balm that I found for my soul. It's right here in Matthew's gospel. It's going to start in verse 18. And if there was anyone who ever had difficulty getting into the Christmas spirit, it was Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus. See, the reality is for, for Joseph, Christmas wasn't sentimental at all. It was a crisis. The very first Christmas shows up as a scandal a a supernatural scandalous crisis and Matthew the gospel writer not only is he is he bold to just lay it out but he's convinced that our understanding of the scandal of the incarnation is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Larry King, who's the famous interviewer for CNN, and he's interviewed some of the most interesting people in the world, virtually every interesting person on the planet, it seems Larry King has interviewed. And he was asked who he would most like to interview. It's famous question and answer with Larry King, and his answer was Jesus. And when he was asked what he'd like to ask him, he, he says, he always says this. He says, I'd like to know from him, was his mother really a virgin? Because for Larry King, that answer would change everything. It, it would have ramifications, I think, on every part of his life. There's nothing about his life that wouldn't be impacted. And here's the reality. See, Larry King, he's not sentimental at all about the birth of, of Christ. Christmas is not, for Larry King, the happiness of carols and Christmas trees. For, for Larry King, it's deeply troubling. Troubling. You see, Jesus was either the Son of God made man, or He wasn't. And the birth of Christ is either supernatural or superstition, but it is not sentimental. And I think the reality, I've said this before, Christmas always has this danger of sentimentality. And I I like, listen, I like sentimentality. not, Not anything wrong in and of itself. But a sentimental Christmas is not what the Bible presents. See, one writer, he defines sentimentality this way. It's a great definition. He says, it's enjoyment without obligation. That's what it means to be sentimental. It's to enjoy something but have no obligation to it. But that's not what Christmas is. It's not enjoyment without obligation. We'll talk about what I think that obligation is. But same writer goes on and he says, it, to, to accept the consolations or the, the comfort of religion without ever facing the challenges of religion. See, that's not the Christmas message. But if we're not careful, we easily turn it into that. And if we're not careful, that's what we find ourselves pursuing As we remember the birth of Christ, we pursue what is sentimental about it. What Matthew does is he's going to present the birth of Christ, but it's not sentimental. It's supernatural. And the first believers, Mary and Joseph, they're faced with challenges untold, really. And challenges we must all face in one way or another If if this one who was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. So, Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 18, and I'm going to read to the end of that chapter, and then we'll walk through some things I want you to, to not miss this morning. Here's how Matthew writes it. Matthew 1, beginning verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they were engaged, they were prepared to be married, but very first century style, not 21st century style. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Thank you, Johnny. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. You would take these words that you inspired and have preserved, and you would uh, you'd minister them to us. You would, that they would be like water in the desert to our souls this morning. That, Father, it would cause growth in us and insight and understanding and and transformation. Father, You promised that that's what we encounter when we encounter Your living Word. And so I pray this morning it would not return void in our lives. And we ask all of this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, this the story of Matthew's birth, it's, it's told through the eyes, or Jesus' birth in Matthew. It's told through the eyes of Joseph. If you look at Luke's account, that's told through the eyes of Mary. This one is is the uh, is, is is Joseph, and, and the central facts are the same. But but instead of, of Luke's picture, you know, of this. Uh, uh, you know, Galilean girl who uh, has this incredible encounter, overwhelming, humbling, worshipful encounter with, with an uh, with a messenger from God. Matthew's going to show us this more sober response from Joseph, having just discovered that his fiance is pregnant. And and where the two stories kind of converge on the Venn diagram is that the messenger from God, the angel from God, will say, do not be afraid. He says it this way. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Well, what is the way? Well, I think there's almost no other word for it than scandal. Scandal. That could describe what follows. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, he he steps out of glory and out of honor and out of praise into scandal. See the reality. You wonder how who knew this about Jesus' birth? I mean, was this a thing when he became a man? Did people talk about this? And I think there's evidence in John's gospel that. That the circumstances are surrounding Jesus, but they were always whispered about. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 41, he's talking to the religious leaders, the Jews, and he's I mean, really what he's he, he's he's letting them know, listen, if you have the Son, you have life. If you want to know the Father, know me. And and in their in their resistance, um uh they you know, they be, they begin to reject Jesus. Jesus says in John eight, forty one, you you're doing the works your father did. He's talking about the the enemy, talking about Satan there. And then they say to him, oh yeah, you want to bring our Father into it? We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. It appears as though when Jesus brings up the Father in their rejection of him, they whisper the rumors that had probably been with Jesus his whole life. See, the reality, Jesus wasn't just coming into the world. I mean, he was, he was coming into the world, but he was crashing into Joseph's life. He was coming into the life of Mary and Joseph in this coming, this appearing, this advent. That's what advent means, is Appearing is not without our need for faith. One writer says it this way, Joseph, or Jesus was coming into Joseph's life just as he was about to come in. Joseph, at this point, was standing right on the precipice. He was about to sweep away the coming Christ. He was about to take Jesus out of his life. Jesus was coming in, Joseph was about to arrange things so that it wasn't going to happen. Well, in, in verse 19, you see Joseph, he's faced with the dilemma. Here, the woman he's engaged to, she turns up pregnant. And he knows he's not the father. So, what he's doing is he's making plans to put her away. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 22, Joseph's a just man, means he's a man of the, of the law. And Deuteronomy 22, the, the recourse for this would have been um, to present her to the elders of the, of the city... For examination. And at this point, if it was found to be true that she was pregnant, they might have taken her to the city square and stoned her. But Joseph, he's a good man, and he's a he's a righteous man, and he doesn't want to see that happen to Mary. And so he comes up with a plan to divorce her quietly, to, maybe to, to, to send her away. The, the truth is, though, in the size of town that they grew up in. There was no real way to do it quietly. It would have been gradually, but it wouldn't have been long before Mary wouldn't have been able to conceal that she's pregnant, and certainly no way to conceal the child after he was born. So in verse 20, as Joseph is wrestling with what to do, an angel of the Lord shows up, a messenger from God. And the angel comes in a dream and tells Joseph two things. And the first is, don't be afraid. And the reason you tell people not to be afraid is because something fearful is going on. And in Joseph, uh, the, the messenger said, Joseph, don't fear this thing. Don't fear taking Mary as your wife. I mean, maybe he feared the loss of his reputation or the blow to his pride. Maybe the scorn that he would endure when people began to do the math, you know, from the wedding day and the birth of his son. Second thing the angel says is, for that which is conceived is from the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask this. Have you ever, have you ever thought about the role of the Holy Spirit in the conception of Jesus. I, I will admit I don't think about it until Matthew makes me think about it. Now I'm making you think about it. Here it is. The Holy Spirit made the pre existent second person of the Trinity into a human being. One way to say it might be that the Spirit genesis Jesus. I'll tell you why I say that. If you were to read the text out loud in the Greek, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, now the genesis of Jesus Christ, that's how it would sound, Jesus Christos the Genesis. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, you know how it begins? The book of the, and then you literally would pronounce the Greek word, the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. This is the the Genesis of the Spirit's work to take the preexistent Son of God and form His inward parts to to knit him together in his mother's womb to make him fearfully and wonderfully made. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit we find in Genesis 1 that's hovering over the deep comes and overshadows Mary's womb in Luke chapter 1. Making God's Son into one of us when writers bones and brains and blood with lungs and lips and lymph nodes with head and heart and hands a supernatural scandalous crisis is what joseph faces and it is a divine disruption of everything First thing is it's a disruption of his comfort. Joseph, uh, the messenger saying, Joseph, this is supernatural. And for all that it may cost you, all the disruption, all the disdain you may endure, all the comfort that you forfeit. The messenger is bidding Joseph to believe. Believe inevitable that Mary's life, the perfect, you know, Jewish bride is going to be ruined. She risked being cut off by her family and ostracized by her friends and shunned by her community, and it doesn't matter what she says, nobody's going to believe her, right? No, 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 really. It was the Holy Spirit. Nobody's buying that. See, here's the deal. This is a moment for which Joseph, Joseph's called to receive Christ into his life. And if he marries her, the, the disgrace is going to come with it too. The only way he can be free is if he divorces her. Then it's clear she's un, been unfaithful to him. If he marries her, have his child through four months later, then what everybody's going to assume is that they've been unfaithful to God together. Joseph's wrestling. I don't want this child in my life. If I bring this child into my life, everything is disrupted. My life will be ruined. For Joseph to receive Jesus. I I just want you to feel the weight of this. For Joseph to receive Jesus means this disruption. All the comfort and all the convenience That's what it means for him to identify with this child. Not only does it disrupt his comfort, his, his convenience, it, it, it's convenience, it's going to be a disruption to his control of things. Verse 21, not only does Jesus come into Joseph's life, disrupt his comfort, it also threatens what I would call control. I mean, listen, we hate to be inconvenienced. Right? I mean, we hate for our comfort to be threatened. In fact, we were just talking about it this week, and, you know, one of the things this pandemic has done is certainly it is a a crisis, but, you know, up until just the last three or four weeks, I mean, if we're honest, this, this crisis for most all of us has been an inconvenience. And uh, listen, a grand inconvenience, a, a disruption of all kinds of things, but the reality is it's an inconvenience. And it's so interesting, right? This inconvenience is suffering for me, right? We don't like our inconvenience, or convenience threatened. And we also hate being out of control. The reason I bring up this being in control is because when you look at the passage there in verse 21, notice what the angel, the messenger says, um, she'll bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. See, God's the one who is commanding that his name will be Jesus. In other words, Joseph, you're not going to name the child anything you want. You're going to name the child Jesus. And it might not be a big deal to us today. But if you're in the first century, naming is not just a label. It's not just something, you know, you you call somebody, although it is, or a way to identify one person from the next person. Naming is this act of authority, this implied submission, this implied control, you know, that... I brought you into this world, I can take you out of this world kind of a thing. You you had authority to name something that came under your, your management, your control. That's why, typically, we do not discipline children whom we did not name, right? As much as we would like to sometimes start a business, you name it. It's under your control. You make the decisions. The angel says to Joseph, you're not going to name the child. God's naming him. If you receive this child into your life, he doesn't come under your management. It's not under your control. You're, you're under his. You're not going to name… He's going to name you. You you read the rest of the New Testament, you find out His name is above every other name. At His name, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's the same for us. When Jesus comes into our life, He's not under our control. We're under His. We don't name Him. We don't invent Him. We don't manage Him. We don't create Him. Sentimentality says... Jesus can be every, whoever I want him to be as long as he makes me happy. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. You ever see the movie Talladega Nights? I don't recommend it. But I have college kids, and I've seen the movie. And there's a scene, Will Ferrell, and he's at the table, and they're having prayer, and he, and he prays to the little, little tiny baby Jesus. And his wife says, why do you always pray to the baby Jesus? He says, well, that's the one I like the best. You know, he's just a little tiny, cuddly baby Jesus, cute baby Jesus. That's the one I like the best. That's the one I'm praying to. You'd listen, that's sentimentality. Jesus comes to rule and to reign. He's come to make you his. Well, the last thing to notice here and I say a couple of other things after this, but one, not only does he disrupt our comfort, does he does he come and disrupts our control of everything. He comes and he, he comes and he exposes our need. In fact it's the mission of his life. It's built into his name. The messenger, Matthew's messenger, tells us the meaning of Jesus' name, for he will save his people from their sins. Not from the government, not from their hard lives, not from all the inconveniences, not from… He will save them from their sins. And bound up in the name of Jesus is his very mission… See, when you receive Jesus, when Jesus comes into your life, you're confronted with the reality that you've got to be saved, that there's a need you have that you can't meet. You're in need of being rescued from your sins. That's the reason for Christmas. It's the divine, supernatural, ultimate rescue mission. Notice in in 22 and 23... You'll call his name Jesus in the end of 23, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And there's a sense, I think, in which Matthew's putting these together. Jesus, which means he'll save his people from their sins. God saves. That's what it means. And he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. And there's something about being saved and God being with us that go together hand in hand. God's not saving us from a distance. He's he's not like up in heaven, far away from us, disconnected, writing a decree that you'll be saved and you just do these certain things. No, God comes near. He comes, he's with us and saving us. And those go hand in hand. It's a tremendous grace when you see these two things side by side. So I think a lot of people think about salvation this way. I really want to be saved. I just don't want to have to see God in the process. It's the way the Israelites were. Man, God shows up on the mountain. This is a people. He's going to make them his royal priesthood. He, they're going to be his people. And he shows up, and the people are terrified. In fact, they say to Moses in Exodus chapter 20, here's the thing. We don't ever want to have to see God again. You, you go talk to God, and then you tell us what he says. We don't ever want to be confronted with that again. That's the way a lot of people, I think, approach. So I'd really love to be saved. I just don't want to have to face God the reality is the incarnation says, no, here's the thing, to be saved means that God comes near to you. God shows up. We can't survive God with us if we don't fully believe and embrace that God is for us. To the baby, Jesus... In this moment that he comes into the world, he joins heaven and earth from a manger. And then he'll grow up and he'll stretch his arms out on a cross to bring peace between a holy God and a sinful people. He will endure suffering so that we don't have to endure it. He will do it. He will save his people from their sins. It is God who does everything. He does it all. He didn't wait for us to act. It's, that's not Christmas. He's not merely responding to all the things that we've done and rewarding us with a pardon. That's not Christmas. He's not wa- waiting for us to persuade him. That's not Christmas. It's God who does everything. That's Christmas. That's the joy of Christmas. And here's what's amazing. I'm going to show you this one last thing, and then we'll close. But here in verse 23. The very end of verse 23, it's probably in parentheses in your Bibles. In verse 23, the ESV reads, which means God with us. That's Matthew there. He's interpreting that. He's translating it for us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew goes, which means God with us. The old King James, if you have the King James, says that's interpreted as God with us. Well, the reason he does that is because Emmanuel is Hebrew. It's a transliteration of a Hebrew word. Matthew, he's writing in Greek, writing for Greek speakers, maybe... Aramaic speakers, and there's controversy about that. But either way, what Matthew's doing is he's interpreting for us in case you don't know the Hebrew, in case you don't know all the history, in case you don't know all the stories of who God is, in case you don't know who God is, that's okay. God knows you. He sent his Son to be with us. And since then, it's been interpreted in almost every language across the planet. Throughout history, just so you know, this is what it means. God is with us. You don't have to go find God. He's come for you. i think telling Matthew, the writer of this gospel, Matthew is not sentimental. He knew what it was to be saved. He's a tax collector living in Roman comfort, a man who had abused his own people, gotten wealthy at the expense of their burdens. Matthew is called by Jesus to follow him. Matthew, come follow me. Come out from behind the tax desk and I'll call you to a life of serving people who hate you. Matthew, follow me. Which means you no longer control your destiny. I I am your king. Matthew, follow me. You cannot save yourself, not from the money you make, not from the political alignments you enjoy, not your status, not even your religion. Following me means you accept you're a sinner in need of rescue. And that I alone can save you. There's nothing sentimental for Matthew about that. It's supernatural. It's a supernatural, divinely created crisis that came into his life. In some ways, Matthew had much to lose. And if you sit here this morning and you think, you know, I have so much to lose. So many things I'm clinging to. So much I feel like I would have to let go of if this is really true. It's why Jesus says for those that lose their life they'll gain it. They'll be saved. Matthew lost his life to Jesus. Then he began to truly live. Listen, maybe you're here this morning, feel like the supernatural reality of Jesus entering into this world is better left to sentimentality. You know what? I'm just happy with the carols and the Christmas tree, and I just don't want to be confronted with the Savior. There's too much to lose. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're online. So glad you're online. Maybe life's falling apart. You've nowhere to turn. You think, listen, Jesus is only for good people. And you have to get to a certain place first. First before you can find him. Let me just tell you, that's not Christmas. Here's the way one writer says it. If, if you're like that, if you're broken, if you're poor, if you're a single woman who's pregnant and tempted to be ashamed, why do you think the mother of God was a single, pregnant, unwed mother? Because this is God's way of saying, I don't care what you are or what you've done. If your heart condemns you, I'm greater than your heart. In Jesus Christ, you're beautiful to me. Do not be afraid. You can receive him this morning. For those of you that have received him, for those of you that know Christ as your Savior, the, the supernatural divine disruption has come to you and you've received it now you're working that out in your in your life with the help of God's spirit we celebrate this morning as the church we celebrate communion it's the remembrance of of the life and the death of of Jesus it's the remembrance of his death on a cross it's the remembrance that his body, physical human body that took place at this incarnation grew to a man and was nailed to a cross. That he suffered death, even death on a cross, the way Paul writes it. Took your shame, took your sin, became your sin and then shed his blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this morning what we do is what Jesus instructed his disciples to do. Matthew was there. To take this cup and to take this bread and to eat and to drink in remembrance of him. remembering why Jesus came, why he was born and how he saves he took your place he died your death he laid in your grave and was risen to new life so that you in receiving him take to yourself all that he is in the incarnation jesus becomes all who we are, so that we can become all who He is. That's what it means to receive Christ, to say, I cannot save myself from my sins. I need a Savior. That one is Jesus. If you don't have one of these... I'm going to pray, and you can slip up your hand, and we've got some folks that will bring you one of these. I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing for a moment an opportunity for us to, to confess our sins, to present our hearts and our minds to God. And then what we'll do is we'll eat and drink together. And so if you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray this morning... That as we roll into December and in this season and all the all the things that are competing against the old sentimental feelings that we have or want to have, I, Father, I, you know, I say thank you for that and I pray you'd crash into our lives all over again. That we'd be reminded that what we're celebrating is far more than just the music and the songs and the trees and the packages and the colors. and the But, Father, what a great season to remember as so many things seem stripped away and disrupted. that's exactly why you came. And the great news is that you came to You sent Your Son to be called Jesus to announce that You save, that He would be called Emmanuel so that we'd know you, You saved us by coming to us to be with us. And so, Father, if there's anybody here this morning, whether in this room or online with us, that hasn't received Your Son, I pray that You would grant them faith even now to take hold of Your gift and receive eternal life in His name. In Jesus' name we pray all these things.